Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I speak with Amanda Berlin, Information Security Architect at Hurricane Labs. We'll be talking about how to assess and develop defensive security policies when you're new to the task, how to approach core security fundamentals like asset management, and generally how you can successfully improve your organization's security with limited time and resources. Enjoy the show. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for joining me on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Hi, how are you? Fantastic. We are going to talk about the challenges facing individuals just entering a defensive security role this evening. Exactly. Always a fun topic. (laughs) Well, let's start with a brief introduction. Can you give me a summary of your professional experience in your current role? Sure, sure. Um, I've been doing, uh, you know, IT related things now for, gosh, almost 15 years, which makes me feel old. Um, And I've been doing strictly security things for about four years now. Um, I think I was doing security before that. I just didn't know it. It was just kind of baked in everything that I was doing. I worked my way up. I started, you know, help desk as most people do, worked my way into some sysadmin and net admin roles. And then now I'm doing security architecture stuff around Splunk. And, you know, I really enjoy writing. I do my own blog posts. I, uh, I'm on another podcast. I'm on Breaking Down Security. And we just, I just finished co-authoring a book through O'Reilly called The Defensive Security Handbook. Congratulations on the publication of your book. Yay! I'm so happy it's over. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the defensive security space. Uh, more specifically, it's a really common narrative. For someone to get their start in defensive security as a system administrator or an IT person who rather abruptly gets asked or more likely told that they're now responsible for maintaining security, many times they have no prior security experience or training. And so today we're going to talk about these individuals. Um, And I'd love to know, to start out, what advice would you have for someone who recently found themselves in this situation? Uh, Other than run. um... (laughs) I've I've actually found myself in this situation too many times. And that's honestly one of the major reasons Lee and I decided to write this book was because we had walked into environments too many times where there were people that were put in these kind of roles that either, you know, they were they were in the help desk or they were, you know, a sysadmin, they were doing something that was one specific job role and some C level executive saw, you know, know, went to RSA or saw a breach on the news, whether it be in their specific industry or not, and realized, oh, hey, we need to do security. So not knowing anything about security, they'll just say, oh, well, you know, computer things, we'll just have you do it. And that's such a wide range to cover, right? There are, there's security baked into every piece and part of technology, and there's no possible way you can hit it all. So we wanted to kind of just cover best practices, the, you know, the first things that you should look at in most of those spaces. So window security, network segmentation, policies and procedures, you know, you name it, we tried to cover most of it to kind of give those people a leg up when they don't really know where to start. So that's an interesting um, problem, especially when everybody's coming from these really diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, Another thing to consider is that, I mean, the business doesn't stop because somebody is newly put into this role or you have somebody leave. And so these people not only are trying to adjust to an entirely new landscape, 
but everything is still moving at business speed. And they, you know, they may not have had any security baked in prior. So now you can't, you can't just re-architect a, re-architect a system by shutting it down and starting all over again. You have to re-engineer things in pieces and parts while things are probably catching on fire without, you know, significantly impacting business. Otherwise, they're going to see this newly created security group breaking everything. Of course. So somebody thrown into this situation, where do they begin? Oh, there's so many things and so many ways you can take it just because, you know, every every environment's different. But there are, I think, some key things that you can start with, um, no matter how big your organization, no matter what, you know, what your landscape looks like. And, you know, any uh, environment that you walk into, there are certain things unless, you know, it's all paper-based, that you're going to be able to do as far as security goes. So one is just sit down and breathe <laughs> and kind of come up with a plan. Lay out what that plan's going to be, establish teams, talk to executives, um, and, and then go from there. A, a big thing people have a problem with is not knowing what's on their, what's on their network as well. And we can talk about that in a little bit, about like asset management and stuff. Because you can't, you know, you can't uh, secure what you don't know you have. Um, other steps that you can take are, I've sat down, I, I do a lot of consulting now, and I've sat down and one of the first questions I ask a lot of my customers is, okay, well, what keeps you up at night? What are your threats and your risks that are, you know, targeted towards your specific business? I give them an example like, you know, Coca-Cola is obviously going to want to protect their recipe. You know, that's the big thing, right? Banks are going to want to protect their money. There's, you know, specific things that each industry or each company have that will completely tank their business. Uh, it's amazing at the amount of people I can ask that question to that have absolutely no idea what their risks are. You have to sit down and it's not just going to be an, an information security decision. That's going to be something that you talk to your key stakeholders, you know, um, and anybody that's in an upper level management position to let them know what the kind of risks are that are out there and kind of, you know, without without scaring them, say, oh, the mean hackers are going to come get you, kind of sitting them down and having a conversation on how to plan out around those risks so you can be a little bit, you know, safer at the end of the day. So it sounds like then one of the first steps is really um, communicating with the rest of the business entity, thinking about security and context of that business role, and really discussing with the rest of the organization how security fits into that. Correct? Yeah, exactly. And you can't you can't do it all alone. Um, you know, they they have to be there to help move those business decisions. You know, later on down the line, when you have all of this stuff planned out, you're going to want to run through like tabletop drills and create use cases around your specific risks. You know, the, the tabletops and drills and stuff that you go through not only will help you in the beginning figure out where you're lacking, but you can also, you know, if you had an actual attack against your infrastructure or had something go down, you can work that into your drills and improve from it, you know, because you can go through and figure out what you did wrong before it happens. And even after it happens, you, you want to look back and make sure you build that in so you can, you know, continue to be better each time. So 
One of the more challenging aspects of defensive security, especially to someone without previous experience, might be the sprawl or the perceived lack of boundaries of the task. How can you set some constructive boundaries or generally keep things in scope for building or redesigning security in your organization? Um, So that one's going to depend on the size. A lot of times it's easier with a smaller organization. You know, if you have like 2,000 endpoints or less, say, you're going to be able to pretty much cover everything by yourself by yourself or with a small team. And then in the larger, larger organizations, you may have a firewall team and a, you know, a DevOps team and, you know, somebody that does physical security. You're going to have all of those people that have their own individual scopes that you're going to have to work across all of those teams. And, and it makes the redesign a little trickier because you ha- you know you you may have one change that you have to talk to five different departments about but in the end you know it's it's going to improve the overall security of the organization asset management and documentation these are things <laughs> that we consistently hear the organizations are struggling with and yet they're critical for any security program oh and- yeah If these larger organizations are struggling, how can someone successfully tackle these when they're perhaps only a security team of one? Asset management, no matter if you're one person or you have 50 on your security staff, is always a pain point. Um, Out of all of the customers I think I've ever dealt with, I've, I've been able to see one that's done asset management correctly. They knew where all of the devices were coming into their network at. They had alerts on if a new MAC address showed up. That's that's your pie in the sky. You want to know and be alerted if something plugs in or connects to your wireless that you've never seen before or haven't haven't approved. That's aspirational. Uh, perhaps we can bring it <laughs> down. Right, right. Oh no, no. Yeah, I'll 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 start at the beginning too. <laughs> um, I I think in the beginning there's there's a lot of different pieces and parts that you can pull in from different areas, right? So you can grab information off of your routers and switches for MAC addresses and IP addresses. You can get information out of DNS for host names. Um, You know, DHCP has its own, you know, amount of information. There are free software out there that you can get if you don't want to get something like, you know, there's there's some high-end Cisco uh, products that will do this for you. But then, you know, there's some some, uh, free software. One of them is called Open Audit fairly easy to set up. It'll just go out and do a, a ping sweep and DNS look up on uh, ranges of IP addresses and pull in everything that it can. Um, so just different pieces and parts that you can do uh, to kind of build an overall idea of the assets that you have to work with. It's, it's definitely not going to find everything. Things like vulnerability scans, you know, you can go out and get a free trial of Nessus and scan every every IP address range that you know that is on your network. And it's going to find things that you never knew you had. Because if it's not on the domain, it's not in DNS somehow, you may have, you know, a box that's been sitting in a closet in the middle of nowhere that you never knew was on your network that has, you know, Windows 2000 on it. So asset management, obviously one of those tasks you're never going to be entirely done with. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's never a Never should look at asset management as a project. It should always be built into your process. You know, talk talk and work with your uh, purchasing department. You know, if they're the one that purchased the PCs and hands them out, you should work with them so they know it goes from purchasing to your help desk department, help desk, 
you know, distributes them and it gets tracked in the asset management at each step. And the same thing goes with when you get rid of them. You know, somebody might kill their laptop or, you know, something, you know, a, a server dies, something like that. You want to make sure to take those out of your asset management too. So in the end, um, you can also maybe save on, you know, software licensing or something like that. So you're not paying for, you know, a hundred or so licenses for computers that you don't even have. That's a great point. So another thing we always see evolving is sort of creating and revising basic policies and standards or procedures for security. And that's something that needs to evolve as your organization evolves. Uh, If you're just getting started with this, or if you're tasked with revising some of those policies, where should you look for guidance? Um, I usually point people to uh, NIST. So it's the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, I think. I'm always really bad with acronyms. (laughs) But they have a lot of policy and procedure templates that you can use. Like they'll have one out there for two-factor authentication. You know, you can download that um, kind of rework the word so it it actually applies to whatever you're trying to do. Um, That way you don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel when somebody already has the basic principles in there. It's a great resource. Speaking about user education, uh, you are an expert in the area of user education. You have created a number of phishing education programs. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience in this realm? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I've created a couple of them. And they're always uh, fun and interesting to implement in an organization that has had little to no user education before. A lot of people have, you know, the computer-based training once a year, the same time where they make sure everybody knows how to use a fire extinguisher. That never sticks. You know, people will click next, 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 finish. They will, you know, retake the test until they get the passing grade, and then they'll go on and forget about it. Um, our goal was always to kind of have a repetitive process and have them graduate steps. So we would, you know, do some OSINT and find email addresses that were out there on the web. And those were our first targets because they were the most likely to be um, attacked by bots and other, you know, just automatic phishing programs. And then we would move on to people like finance, um, database administrators, people with more power, and start simple. You know, we would just send them uh, a couple sentences of plain text and a link that went somewhere internal from a Gmail address to see if they would give us their username and password. And without any training, it was usually 60 to 80% successful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. and it's not, there's nothing like proving to upper level management that what you're doing is going to be successful by showing them the plain text usernames and passwords showing up on your screen after you sent out the fish. And then, you know, several months later, after you've been doing this and educating your people, see that drop way down. Wow. Um, we would keep extensive metrics, like percent of people that clicked on it, percent of people that gave their passwords. And we would focus on not necessarily teaching them what was wrong behavior. I mean, we would also include that because it makes sense for the people that would you know, retain that information, but more focused on letting them know who to contact if something seemed weird, you know, because they'll, they'll kind of get just that feeling like, oh, this doesn't really seem quite right. We want to capitalize that and use them as 
you know, a million eyes on your computers that you might not necessarily have technology to cover. So were you pretty successful at remediating some of these um, problems? One of my biggest success stories, I think, is um, we had been doing it for four or five months, I think, at the time. Um, And and our, our process was we would send out the phishing email, we would capture the credentials, and as soon as their credentials were captured, we would send a send them to a hey, you've been hacked, but it's okay. This is what you need to do next time. This is how you report it. And there are awards based around it to, you know, get more participation and things. So after those several months of of doing all that process, we actually had a professional, you know, third-party pen testing company come in and do a full-scope pen test, phishing, you know, um, physical security stuff, you know, the whole thing. And they sent their fish, which looked amazing. It hit, I think, I think it was like seven or nine people they sent it to in between when they sent the fish and um, we received notice of it at, um, they, they had actually ended up calling the help desk and then it was escalated to our team. Um, it was seven minutes. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're not going to have an IDS or IPS always alert or your mail filtering always alert on a phishing attempt, but to have a user call you in seven minutes and you be able to block the IP address at the firewall, you know, take that PC off the network, remove the other emails that you see in your mailing, you know, mail system. That's a huge advantage that, you know, not a lot of people would have if it weren't for those uh, end users being able to tell you about it. And it's also a very cost effective program. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the one that we had put together at the first place I worked um, only cost a thousand dollars a year. I mean, That's... not including my time. Right. So, yeah. like my, you know, but but capital was a thousand dollars a year and it was all put towards prizes. Um, anytime someone would report something, they their name would get put in a fishbowl. It was all fish themed. And um, at the end of Every month, the end of every quarter, and the end of every year, there were different level prizes that people could win. Wow. It sounds like it was pretty effective. Yeah, yeah. So speaking on user education, what other aspects of user education or user training should someone suddenly task with security consider for their organizations? What are these other quick and easy and budget-friendly wins? So, so like I mentioned before, showing them their training more often um, and not just including technical aspects, you know, in, in that training, if you, you know, if you were to do your own, you can also outsource, you know, there's a lot of places out there that have their own kind of canned user education program. I prefer making them myself if you have the time and, and, uh, ability to do so just because you can custom fit it to whatever you want. Um, but, to, uh, you, you want to include things like physical, physical or operational security. So, you know, checking to make sure um, contractors always have their badge and are always being escorted by somebody appropriately. You don't want people to be walking into your data center randomly because they look like a contractor that's supposed to be there. Um, if you listen to any any social engineering talk that's ever been out there, you know, the whole clipboard and, and yellow vest thing works almost 100% of the time because they look like they belong and nobody ever questions them. Just like just like with the reporting, your users might not necessarily want to uh, interact with that person that they think doesn't belong there. But 
if they know who to call, you know, maybe your uh, site security can come take care of them as, as opposed to, you know, the user having that interaction and having to, you know, look awkward or, or like they're, you know, following somebody that might not necessarily need to be there. Great. And an important part of any sort of program, um, but I would think especially with this user education is to kind of gain meaningful metrics. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that's going to prove <laughs> that the program you're doing is actually working, and it'll give you kind of insight if you need to change something or, you know, add something or keep doing what you're doing, um, is keeping track of all of the metrics that you possibly can, even per user, you know, you can, you can keep track of a user and as they get better. So you're going to keep track of the metrics and if they clicked or if they reported and each, you know, maybe they get it each month, you can see then in those metrics, if they've gotten better or worse, and you can group it by um, uh, like department. So you could always focus your energy on, you know, one or two specific departments if they're worse at it. Um, you also don't want to focus your energy on departments that aren't ever going to need it. So say you have a housekeeping department that might have a login, but they never use it. Or, you know, you don't, you're, you're going to want to train them more on physical security measures than you are on, you know, opening up a Word document. They don't even have Office installed. Sure. So we're thinking about prioritizing then who are the most likely targets, who are the um, people that if they were to have some sort of vulnerability would be the largest possible threat to the organization. So it's really about, once again, keeping security in the context of the larger organization and the business unit. Right. So like if somebody has access to, uh, to do wire transfers, I don't care if they're not the best with computers, they are going to need to be. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they need a lot of handholding and one-on-one -on -one training because they hold a lot of power in their hands by being able to transfer that kind of money out of the organization. Of course. So we're hitting a lot of points today, but um, when somebody is tasked with all of these roles, then rather suddenly it's necessary for them to start wearing all these different hats, you might say. And one of the things that every organization should have and never hopes to use is an incident response plan. Um, when we were talking about some of these organizations that aren't necessarily very security aware or security <laughs> mature, what are the most common types of incidents that they should be planning for? Everybody should plan for ransomware. It's extremely prevalent. It, you know, they say phishing always works. And, you know, a, a good majority of the time it's to get you to download something so they can, you know, install ransomware on your computer. That should be something always that's included in your incident response plan. Now, incident response plans can be as simple or as, you know, dedicated internally as you as you want. Some people, their incident response plan for ransomware is uh, shut everything off and call Mandiant. If that's as simple as your IR plan as you want it to be, then sure, that's great. Um, other people are going to have a full-blown, you know, investigation depending on the severity of it. Some places are advanced enough that they can, you know, reverse their own malware. Many places aren't. You have to know where to draw the line um, on stopping your incident response internally and, and getting somewhere external to come in and help. Um, it's very difficult to be knowledgeable about all of this stuff. And incident response is super in-depth because it's, you know, different no matter what. And, uh, 
you, you don't want to have to make that decision in the middle of an incident. Of course. You know, you, you want to have, if, if you decide to go with a third party, you want to have that contract in place beforehand so you're not calling and they're like, oh, well, now we have to charge you three times as much because it's an emergency and we don't know who you are and we don't have any of your information. Putting putting that plan in place, no matter which way you go with it, is going to be cost effective and, time, you know, better with time. It's, it's uh, definitely something you want to plan for. Great. What should a basic incident response plan look like? And you, you sort of touched about this, especially when certain people may be looking um, to go external. But what are the basics of an incident response plan? Um, so there's there's three sections. You want your pre-incident, your, you know, during the incident, and your post-incident. Pre-incident is, is going to be deciding if it is an incident or not. You know, some things may... Um, it might just be a little bit of spyware that the help desk can, can figure out, or you have to figure out when to escalate it to an actual incident. During the incident, which is step two, you want to figure out where exactly and how far you want to go, which we just talked about. And then the post-incident is going to be you looking back on PCAPs or, you know, reverse, uh, reverse engineering. Um, you know, you can look through logs and sims and and all of that kind of stuff that you keep track of to see if you could have done anything better if you should change your ir program maybe maybe you've gained a whole bunch of new skills and you can change it so you do a lot of that stuff internally and you're saving some money um with each new incident you should kind of reassess where you are great well here's another uh unavoidable thing uh fear <laughs> uncertainty and doubt um they are impossible for people working on security or in the security realm to avoid between news stories or marketing plays or sales pitches. And this is especially challenging to sort of weed out what you need to respond to or implement and what you can just disregard when you're new. So how can new security pros tune out the noise while not ignoring the new developments that genuinely should capture their attention? This one's really difficult because everybody's project, every everybody's um, you know piece of equipment or software or process, they're all going to fix all everything in InfoSec, right? Like they have they have the key. You don't the need to buy anything else. Silver bullet, of course. Oh yeah, it's it's the best thing ever. They you know it is going to fix all your security problems, and you are going to be able to retire tomorrow. Um. Just remember that all of them are just trying to make money off of you for the most part. <laughs> yes, a lot of a lot of the a lot of it does work, but there's a good amount of it that might not be correct for your organization. You know, it might work for one person and not the next. I think you should try and get real world advice and real world scenarios where people have used it before. Do your own research. Um, if they let you have a trial of it, sure, go ahead and go for the trial of it. That's another thing, though, that you have to worry about as well. I've seen people go for trials for certain pieces of software. Even even recently, there was something in the news, and that vendor ended up using the information during the trial to show other potential customers. Oh, so wow. you kind of yeah. So you kind of have to be on your toes when it comes to that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think listening to people that aren't salesmen for that company is always a good step. Other 
considerations, um, budget and time. So we're talking about trying to weed out uh, who is real, who isn't real, who's the best fit for your organization. And that's obviously a constraint on budget, perhaps, because you can't afford all of the things and time. Um, and these are especially pronounced for someone who's managing security as perhaps only one aspect of wider responsibilities or who is doing everything on their own. Um, what are some strategies that a system administrator, a network administrator, or someone in this role could use to make security tasks more budget-friendly or efficient? Um, yeah, so I see a lot of people go for the super expensive blinky box next-gen stuff right away because they... You know, they're now in the security role. They've been given this huge security budget or maybe not. And they have to have X, Y, and Z blinky box. Um, there are so many other free things that people pass up on doing that it's ridiculous. It's like getting a full pen test when you've never secured anything down in your environment. It's the same exact thing. You know, people don't take advantage of things like your policy there's so many flat networks out there. They're not, you know, using proper segmentation. All, all of the things that pen testers complain about as being wrong in organizations are, you know, half of that stuff is free. There's free software out there that you can use for, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, asset management. There's one that I like to recommend. It's called NetDisco that will uh, keep track of all of your, um, you know, what endpoints are on what uh, switch ports, that kind of stuff. So there's free things, no matter what organization that you're in. I think that a lot of people aren't taking advantage of. I mean, the user education was a thousand bucks. You know, you don't want to go out and spend, you know, a whole bunch of money for a third party to do it when maybe you could be doing it in-house. So think of the most basic things first, which sounds obvious, but it's hard when you've got all these different things coming at right. you and all these different things. Right. Um, consider your return on investment for things like pen testing when you haven't done those basics because they're going to come back with the basics. Yeah, you, yeah you, don't, you don't need a pen test if, you know, if none of the passwords have been changed in the last three years and, you know, they're stored in a text document somewhere. Yeah. You know, Some that's all free to those things, of course. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But yeah, start at the beginning as much as possible. Think about those uh, core basics. So you are going to be teaching a three-hour tutorial at the upcoming O'Reilly Security Conference. And I am. I'm so congratulations. happy. Thank you. The topic is going to be reversing the kill chain. It's an actionable framework for defending against common threats. Can you tell me a bit about what you'll be covering? Sure. Um, I am going to pick three, four, five, depending on how long it's going to take me, um, common threats that are out there. So um, like uh, ransomware, like I gave an, as, a, as an example earlier, is going to be one of them. Um, I'm going to take the steps of the kill chain and break down the ransom, like what happens with ransomware at each step. I'm, I'm not only going to break down what happens with the ransomware, or most ransomware, some's different, but uh, I'm not going to only break down what happens with the ransomware. I'm also going to give at each step what defensive measures you could be taking to stop it completely or lessen the threat as, you know, as, you know, the steps of the kill chain go, you know, proceed. And then along with that, as well, at each step, I'm going to provide different types of logging and alerting you can do. Oh, wow. So it's really about building um, 
like a more dynamic defense. So it's not just about yeah. here's the first step, but here's how you can take it to the next step. I mean, obviously we all want to stop ransomware at that first step. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you could stop everything at the reconnaissance step, of course you would. You'd, wouldn't that you be know, a it, lovely it, place to be? That, yeah. That gives you so much more free time that you're not having to battle these threats. <laughs> well, it's a, I, I think it's fantastic. And I love how you've turned it around and really reconsidered the, the defensive aspect because we hear this uh, cyber kill chain is so, so, something you can't avoid in this space. Um, right. But I really like how you've reversed it and focused on the defensive aspects. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Well, I'd also love to know what other talks or tracks that you're really looking forward to at the conference. So I saw you said the uh, the schedule had just come out and I t- took a look at it a little bit. Um, I'm really excited. One of my best friends is speaking, uh, Kimber. So she's going to be talking about a bug bounty program. And of course, the keynotes. I always like watching Allison Miller, her, Allison Miller talk. So, Well, fantastic. And we're going to be announcing um, more information as we get closer to the conference. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. It's been great having you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. You can reach Amanda on Twitter at InfoSister. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>